Welcome to Unboard, Unplugged, Unscripted Board Leadership, a conversation between boardroom leaders that covers leadership, priorities, and influence. Now, here's Brian Hayward. I'm joined today from Rio de Janeiro, actually, by uh, Andrea Iorio. I, I love starting these off with the most general of general questions, just to kind of like d- go off the diving board, because I don't know what you're going to an- answer on it. Like, imagine we're all going up a, uh, an elevator together, and I, we're go- obviously in the same place. I say, hey, what brought you here today? Uh, what's your, what was your life experience that, that brought you to this, uh, this hallowed chamber? Thanks, Brian, for the opportunity to be on the podcast and to, you know, quickly go through my story. I'm originally Italian. I was born and raised in Italy, and that's where I got my uh, economics degree. I'm an economist. Um, and that's, you know, uh, I decided to uh, moved to the U.S. to actually do a master's degree in international relations. I studied at Johns Hopkins University, which is most famous for medical school. But in D.C., they have uh, a hub for international relations, and that's where I got my master's. But interestingly enough, uh, I ended up never working with any of that. Uh, it was 20. 20- uh, 11, I guess, uh, 2011. And so that's when I graduated. And uh, it was by when the BRICS were popping up, those countries, you know, emerging countries such as Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And I got very attracted by Brazil and its growth. And that's when I moved to Brazil. And since then, I spent, uh, you know, up until last year uh, when I relocated to the US, but I spent 11 years in Brazil, where I've been working mainly with digitalization. Uh, on the one side with the, you know, digitally native startups such as Groupon at first, and then I was the head of Tinder, uh, the dating app uh, in Latin America. And then also as the chief digital officer uh, of the professional products division at L'Oreal in Brazil. And so I kind of like balanced uh, that knowledge across either digitally native apps, or very traditional institutions wanting to reinvent themselves. And now, uh, you know, it's been a couple of years. I dedicate fully uh, myself to keynote speaking and traveling across Brazil or other countries as well to inspire traditional companies on how to uh, undergo digitalization processes. So uh, this probably won't be a surprise, but because I usually just jump off from what the answer is to my question, but uh, the surprise won't won't be is that when you mentioned Tinder, (laughs) I'm sure that that catches people's attention. Uh, Definitely. How do you go from Johns Hopkins and then and then like did you apply for that or and and they didn't swipe you the (laughs) the wrong way or how how do how does that happen? Exactly. They ended up swiping right on me professionally, but jokes aside, um, thanks to uh, a contact that I made uh, while I was working at Groupon. As mentioned, Groupon was that, you know, uh, collective uh, purchasing platform that was very popular in the U.S., uh, founded in Chicago, and I was heading sales in some regions of Brazil. And I started to get in touch with Match.com. Uh, yep. That was by then and up to now, the the the, the big uh, online dating holding group that is also owner of Tinder. And um, we made a deal where we'd uh, offer uh, discounts on the subscription at uh, one of the local online dating websites in Brazil. And I got close to the marketing director at Match.com. And one day she told me, well, we're looking for someone that has a profile similar to yours that is going to be able to do marketing and business development for a new app that we're launching here in Brazil. It recently launched in the US. So I 
uh, flew into Rio de Janeiro. I was not living here, but their office was here. Uh, made a one day of interviews, a uh, full day, and uh, eventually ended up with the with the job. I had heard about Tinder because uh, I had some friends in the US. They were talking about this app that was up and coming. Um, and so <laughs> maybe that helped. And, uh, you know, just I said, okay, let's let's do it. I left it, the Groupon, and joined Tinder, and it's been a ride for five years uh, from scratch. We made it the top-grossing app in Brazil. Yeah, uh, I, I I like to turn a phrase. Let's do it. <laughs> so that's uh... <laughs> <laughs> definitely that's definitely that 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 was uh, um, that was you know leaving the stability uh, of a unicorn as Groupon that was well respected by then for an app that recently launched and nobody knew how it would perform was was it had some deal of like uh, courage at the same time that it scared me a little bit. Yeah. And now contrast that with L'Oreal, which has got to be one of that must be a very traditional kind of organization and, and very European, very classic, you know, compare and contrast as an exam would be to say is, but the leadership styles between a Tinder and, and a L'Oreal. Yeah, exactly. Very, very different. And so what I can say, well, again, uh, Tinder had just launched. It was like couple of months old while L'Oreal when I joined was like uh, 110 years old. So big difference in age. And uh, what everyone knows, uh, you know, our listeners, I'm sure they're well aware, the more years into the market, the more years, especially of successes for any company or any leader, um, the more you form beliefs, the more you, uh, you know, set up processes, bureaucracies, routines, and habits that the more time passes, the harder they are to kind of like undo. And so that was the environment that I found at L'Oreal. It was a company that was leader in many markets, uh, you know, considered arguably the number one beauty company in the world. Uh, but that was very different whenever, you know, you'd think about the challenges of a chief digital officer um, when it comes to, you know, implementing projects, trying to change things, trying to uh, take away some of these bureaucracies, routines, and inefficiencies. Um, that was very challenging. That's why I uh, make the joke that, you know, like the real work of a chief digital officer uh, is to lose his or her job in a number of years because you don't actually need these kind of like transitional uh, positions within a company. Everyone should be responsible for digital as much as innovation. Uh, there should not be, in my point of view, and that's when things got hard because um, still other areas would see digital as a separate thing. And um, that was the challenge that I was facing. It was more of a cultural challenge rather than a technology one. Yeah. So we're on audio, but I'm actually scratching my head a little bit because, <laughs> you know, I've been, I've been around long enough. I, you hear buzzwords. And, and so, I, you know, everybody's heard digital transformation yeah. and those two words. And I actually have to, maybe I'm just dumb, but I actually don't really understand what digital transformation is, is because transformation is going from point A or, or, or a journey from, from somewhere to somewhere else. And, and so you know, is has the process of digital transformation itself transformed? 
Yeah, I mean, what I think about digital transformation is that uh, it's not necessarily just uh, the implementation of digital technologies within a company. It is about the uh, balance between the implementation of these technologies with a cultural transformation that allows for these technologies to work. What I mean by that is that way too often we see in traditional businesses uh, this, yeah, again, view that it's just a matter of launching an e-commerce, launching an app, implementing a CRM system, launching a chatbot, um, you know, on the supply chain, just, you know, automatizing processes, and then we'll just get results out of that. But if teams, leaders, uh, stakeholders do not change proportionally to that, what they have to change, they have to change the way they think and make decisions, the way they collaborate, the way that they use these technologies and understand them. If that does not change, uh, the transformation will not have the benefits uh, or reach the benefits that uh, it is expected. Let me make an example. You can, you know, have a traditional business that, you know, you say, okay, let's focus on big data and let's, you know, metrify every measure everything. But then if we do not update the way we visualize this data, or if we do not put into our meeting as a, you know, a topic, uh, review new KPIs and try to understand how we can better improve. And we just look at the old KPIs, the old way of analyzing data while we're overwhelmed with new data points. Uh, that's not a really a digital transformation. That's just uh, you know uh, using a tool that overwhelms us. Yeah, it's, it's paving it's, the cow path as uh, some of the people that I, you know that I used to work with. They would call it. Yeah, we're just paving the cow path. It's still yeah. the same squiggly line going up the side of the hill. It's, exactly. I like the, the the analogy. It's just you know designing the path, but you don't have the cows following that, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, what I heard out of your explanation in large part is that the culture component is just as important as the technological component that if you don't get the culture, right, then you, and, and that's an invisible element to that whole transformation. That's correct. When when we talk about culture and and processes and thinking, uh, I mean, you were inside Tinder, you're inside L'Oreal, you, you have your hands on the steering wheel, so to speak. But now when you're giving, I just saw on one of your posts, you just were talking with 2000 people in Sao Paulo, I think it was. Uh, but how, how did, how did you, how do you teach that? How, how do we get people to change the way they think? Yeah, that's actually a great topic to discuss. And it's a topic that I've been uh, trying to understand much better. And I think my background as an economist helped me because I think the best uh, um, kind of like background that helps understand how people make decisions is behavioral economics. So I've been digging into behavioral economics over the last years. And uh, I understood that um, just sharing information or asking people to do something or even uh, obliging people to do something like, you know, leaders oftentimes think it's the best way to make them change behavior does not work, right? We all know about laws, rules, you know, again, uh, we all know that we should, you know, uh, during the pandemics that we had to wash our hands every time. We were not, exa- we do not exactly do as human beings what we know it's important. And why so? 
Because again, when we get back to behavioral economics, um, the best way to change behavior, well, at least, you know, uh, the obstacles to change behavior uh, before getting to what helps to change it, the obstacles are friction. Therefore, oftentimes there is too much friction between the current behavior and the expected behavior that we want to change to. And there is no incentive. There is too little incentive or the incentive is too hard to see. And these are the two big things that on the reverse side are exactly the ones that help people change behavior. Mm-hmm. Within our businesses as leaders, as board members, we have to understand that in order to promote a cultural transformation, it's not just about saying that starting from today, we will be more customer centric, we will be more agile, we will be more and just, you know, uh, let's say we will learn through mistakes and so people can make mistakes. Um, it's not just about saying that, but we have to create first the right environment for people to easily switch to the new behavior, which means I want to be more customer centric. Therefore, we have to find ways for people who are in the back office better see how the customer behaves, mm-hmm. uh, better interact with them, right? Um, and so, thing, do, can have- you can you put land that plane? Can you give me a specific example where you can take somebody from the back office and 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 got them yeah. more customer centric? How, how yeah. does that happen? Because again, those tend to be lofty words. Yeah, exactly. Say, well, like, how do I do that? Oh, Andre, yeah, come on, help me. It's it's hard. No, it's true. An example about customer centricity, a, a best practice that I've seen in a big digital bank in Brazil that is called New Bank is actually uh, listed on the stock market in the US. They went for an IPO there. Um, what they do, they actually have one day per month, every person on the back office team and not only salespeople, not only marketing people, they have to respond to customer care uh, calls, right? They have to uh, understand what's the pain point of the customer. Um, Another way is just being a customer of your own product or service. And, uh, you know, this is something that sounds kind of like obvious, but I challenge our listeners and myself at times when I was working at L'Oreal or I was working at Groupon, it was like, I was not purchasing in the stores where my products were sold. I was not going to uh, uh, redeem that discount that I purchased through Groupon. So be the customer of your business and you'll better understand the way that they're treated, especially if you're like, you know, not saying that you work for the company, right? And so uh, there's a number of practical things that help us reduce the friction between the behavior that we are, um, you know, undertaking now and the one that we want to undertake. I, I, I'm intrigued and I'm tempted to actually say, oh, at Tinder, were you a customer? But I will, I will just leave that alone. So uh, I, I, another thing that's, you know, well, in my. <laughs> Tinder, definitely. Exactly. Especially with the times when I was in a relationship, uh, it was not easy to explain that I had to be the customer of Tinder. Uh, but there were times where I was single during those five years. That was easier to say. <laughs> yeah, actually, I uh, it, now in what I do, I, it's interesting because I just was talking with somebody, uh, you know, le- late last week, where uh, my, I'm a client and uh, or they're my client, but it, yeah. it's a retail retail operation, and 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 I went into the store, I bought something, I wanted the customer experience, I, yeah. I just didn't think it, it was credible 
for me to be engaging and talking without actually understanding what, what the experience is. So just on the digital transformation thing, just to, to move along though, um, obviously I mean, with chat GPT, with, with uh, everything that's happening with AI, people saying we got to stop this thing. It's terrible. It's going to disrupt society. What's your view? Where does, where does AI fit in what we call digital transformation? Is that part of digital transformation? Where do you, you must get that question like a ton. <laughs> yes, Brian, I, I would put it into the digital transformation umbrella in a way. But what's interesting is that the best way for us to interpret AI and look at it and look at its future is actually going in the past and better understanding big technological waves and their impact on the job market, on laborers, laborers skill sets and so on. And so when we look at history, uh, transformational technologies that have uh, um, radically changed the way we work, we make decisions, we may collaborate, have already happened. But, yep. and, and I'll make you an example, or at least a couple, let's say, look at textile market. I mean, when the, um, you know, weavers, you know, manual weavers uh, uh, were introduced to weaving machines, they actually got extremely scared. It even brought, um, you know, uh, to they went and broke people. the machines. Yeah. yeah, they went to to actually break the machines. It was the Luddites movement uh, yes. in uh, Great Britain at the beginning of the uh, 18th century. And so what happens there is that at first, if we look at, uh, but then eventually uh, it brought about an increase in productivity, a reshuffle of the job market. And those people actually got relocated to different jobs that oftentimes are better quality because you, you just you know, can think more and, 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 you know, manually uh, use, use your hands less. So maybe it was less tiring. It was more creative and so on. And uh, in my point of view, AI will do the same, but there is a number of, you know, things that we have to consider that make this revolution and this phase different from the most in the past. What happens is, first of all, this is basically one of the first times that, Deeply, our cognitive skills are being kind of like substituted. Well, in the 80s, to be honest, calculators did a very similar thing to what ChatGPT yep. is doing now. But the depth of the fields that ChatGPT is being able to substitute and replicate our uh, thinking is, is wider, right? Calculator would just substitute the analytical skills. Now, has it made, well, have calculators made populations and human beings less smart? Not really. They actually improve the efficiency to make uh, complex calculations. Supercomputing does the same and so on. Because what I'm getting at is that AI will do something very similar to what all of these technological uh, innovations did in the past. Um, it will do it more deeply. It will do it more radically. It will do it in a way that even kind of like makes us pose existential questions, which is, are we needed anymore? Are we going to be needed mm -hmm. anymore? Especially, But to be honest, if we use ChatGPT or other tools of generative AI uh, in order to do the same thing that these technologies did in the past, which is take away from us burdensome uh, 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 content creation, uh, time-consuming jobs. 
Um, and, and which does not mean that, for example, you don't have to think anymore. You have to, for example, instead of like providing better answers, you have to ask better questions to these generative AI tools. You have to uh, be able to have more critical thinking when you receive the output from these tools. Because if you just copy and paste, that's when disaster happened because AI might be, is already biased, uh, is not 100% correct and so on. So what I mean is, just to sum it up, I think AI will be a great tool for us to outsource to AI, kind of like all this manual, kind of like less creative uh, yep. job and time consuming. And we will have like more free time, more free creative juices available to actually yeah. do something that today we often complain we're not able to do, which is in our businesses, oh, but I don't have time to think strategically about my future because I'm overwhelmed with tasks. Yes, but many of these tasks can now be outsourced to technology and we should not fear that. We should see that as something that comes and help uh, helps us. So that's my point of view. Yeah, you know, you made it, I, I, an interesting point, uh, uh, because I think a lot of people look at the technology and and say, oh, it's going to provide the solution to something. But, but you know, you, I think your exact words were pretty well. It's going to help you ask better questions. Yeah. And 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 I I found in in what I my own personal journey and how I spend my time, uh, and and especially in the boardroom kind of setting. You know, what are what are directors or senior managers trained to do now? They are supposed to empower people and they're supposed to allow, you know, the team to work together by actually engaging and not not being directed, but being engaged. And the senior people, the board directors, et cetera, are expected now to ask good questions. Right. Ask. You need to think about what's the really good question you're asking in, instead of being critical, like, you know, how could you be so stupid? That's not a good question, is it? So, but let's go back then, because I think, you know, back to the beginning of, of this, you know, our, our conversation, you were talking about uh, culture and digital transformation. Is there with when we're dealing with AI and its ability to facilitate good questions, does that what's the what are the cultural elements that need to be there? in order for, you know, organizations to successfully implement and, 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 and uh, put, put in place those AI tools and take full advantage of them. It's kind of like you said, you, you need the cultural element. Otherwise the, the boxes don't, they won't yeah. do it themselves. Is, is there a, a different question. mentality, different leadership? Definitely. To me, to me, again, uh, there's a number of factors that we have to understand, again, when it comes to what are the conditions for these uh, cultural changes to happen. It gets back a little bit to that behavioral uh, economics theory that is how to minimize friction and to maximize incentive. But all of these two blocks depend on something that to me is on top and is kind of like almost uh, uh, fundamental is that there will not be any cultural transformation if we don't start off from a leadership transformation. What do I mean by that? Is that, and no, of course just it's still, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> what I mean is not that cultural transformations are not bottom up. I'm not saying that, but I do mean that whatever comes from bottom up, but if you don't have a leadership that first of all, believes 
and and acts accordingly to these new cultural pillars, uh, to be honest, we will not have the full transformation. And so that's why I will touch upon this briefly, these three points. When I look at the cultural transformation, you need these three things uh, to happen. And let me start from minimizing friction. It, it also actually depends on leadership. Like, what does it mean? Um, well, let me even get a step back and just give the best definition, according to me, of what culture is. That is uh, one from Ben Horowitz, the, 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 the VC investor from Anderson Horowitz. He wrote a book called What You Do Is Who You Are. And the best definition that, you know, and it's a book about company culture. And um, he said, culture is what your teams do while you're not watching, right? He was referring mm -hmm. to leaders. It's, you know, the set of micro actions that people undertake within your company without even asking because they think or they know they are standard. They know that. And, and so it gets back to that thing that is it is all about behaviors and actions. And so if we want to change culture, we have to change the way people uh, act. And two, first thing, minimize friction. What does this mean? If I want a culture that allows for mistakes, for example, for people to be more, you know, risk tolerant and experiment more, um, it's not about telling them they can make mistakes. And then within meetings, uh, we still point to people, oh, you made a mistake. This is not appropriate. No, we have to create the conditions where people can experiment more. So giving them resources and can share the learnings from their mistakes better. And for example, setting up, let's say, a monthly meeting through which people share the biggest learnings of their, uh, you know, from their mistakes. IBM was the first to do that through the what they call like the 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 the, the fuck up meetings. And so it's like not talking about only the successes, <coughs> but about the mistakes. And that's just an example. Let's say if we want a culture that tolerates mistakes, we have to create the environment where people feel confident that if they undergo the new behavior, uh, there will be no retaliation. And that's when you reduce the friction because the friction is oftentimes made out of fear. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, that's the first there's, point. There's an analogy that that just struck me while you were talking. Um, is I, I think, you know, one of the most important things in any organization, and I've been involved in ones that are really quite, basic uh, is safety, human safety. And, and, and what I've found to be one of the biggest uh, drivers and, and, and re friction reducers and to use your language is for people to talk about near misses. Yeah. It's not nice. that you went down because you chopped your finger off. It's, it, it's that you actually almost chopped your finger off. So I, I, what I think there's a, there's a very distinct parallel and analogy with what, because the best safety organizations are the ones that actually celebrate people talk, talking about their near misses. I, I had a colleague actually, uh, because it took it one step further and, and I admired him because he would actually at, at social functions, he would make a point, of saying to the the partners and spouses of the the employees, hey, if your if your partner comes home and says, oh, you won't believe what almost I almost got my finger chopped off today, <laughs> he actually made sure that all of the partners had the phone number and the contact information yeah. so that they could share. So there, I think you're onto something there, Andrea. Yeah. Where in order to actually celebrate, here's here's something that didn't totally. work. Totally agree. 
Exactly. I totally agree with that. The second thing then uh, for a cultural transformation to happen is maximize the incentive. And the incentive here, though, is like, okay, let's say, again, client centricity, you create the environment for people to be face-to-face with the customer. But if we do not create the incentive for people to maintain this behavior, uh, this will not uh, this will not uh, be sustained. And so what is the incentive? And here also we have to say that most of the time we do it wrong, which is we think it's just a matter of financial incentives but to, to undergo a new behavior. But financial incentives do not really radically change culture. Why? Because they're just temporary. So s- most studies around cultural transformation show that, show that financial incentives only work until when they're reached. Because once they're reached, people have a tendency to get back to their old pattern of behavior. So if it's not financial incentives that really help us change our behaviors at the company, what is it then? And what I found out by studying most of the researches is something really interesting, although people might say, Andrea, but this is very intangible, it's hard to measure and so on. But What is intangible does not mean it does not have an impact. And what's this intangible thing that creates um, this uh, incentive? It's the sense of urgency. It's the clarity of why you really have to be client-centric. Especially if leaders do not understand it first, teams will never get it, which is, I have to understand that my customer is more and more empowered in the digital age, thanks to digital tools, and he can switch his supplier and he's less loyal to me if I don't grant a good experience. If we don't have clear all of that and we just think that you know we have to transform us culturally because everybody's talking about client centricity, but I do not really understand why it's important to me, we will never really sustain these behaviors mm-hmm. in the long run. And that's mm-hmm. why... It's really important, and is you know like an often uh, used word, kind of like a buzzword that, that is purpose. But it's true if you do not have a purpose in your cultural transformation, you will not have clear why you have to do mm-hmm. the most painful thing that there is out there, which is to give up our habits, routines, beliefs, and 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 processes. Why should we do that? If leaders first do not understand that their teams will understand even less. And so that's the second pillar of it, which is the uh, 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 sense of urgency that creates the incentive for people to act. And uh, the last one is is leadership, and we can talk further about that, but it's how leaders act and think differently. Well, let's do it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> let's continue on this segue. And well, th- this is actually the part that I study and research the most. And that's really the core of my work as a keynote speaker and researcher, which is leadership style in the digital age. And I recently published uh, in the US this book. It's on pre-sale now. It's called Meta Leadership, um, mm-hmm. where I lay out what are, according to me, um, the new five skills that create a new leadership skill set for the world of web web 3.0 this third big new iteration iteration of the internet and of ai and what are these five pillars these five pillars are related to basically uh the main activities of any leader what does what, what do leaders do eventually well first they actually look at the future they secondly they make decisions third they actually understand the customer fourth 
they actually um the, the fourth is um they manage people and fifth is uh, um they basically uh make decisions based on all of that right right and so when we look at all of this I laid out five new skills that are the ones that help companies reinvent their culture in face of all of these uh, exponential changes dictated by technology. And first of all, the first skill that I lay out for a good leader that wants to reinvent the culture in the digital age is what I called uh, reperception. And reperception is the ability of the leader to reperceive things and not just to perceive them. We're very good at making good decisions and sticking to them, especially when they do well when they work right. but yep. the problem is that we're thrown with all of these changes and rapidly change if we do not if we do not learn how to uh be good also at giving up to our beliefs uh the yep. fear is that we will get stuck in our old opinions and so that's basically the first one that i call reperception the second one is what i called a skill that i call data sense making what i say is uh, as much as calculators did in the 80s, date, uh, AI is much better at processing data than we are. So the ability mm -hmm. of the leader is not only of processing data. It's even more of making sense based on the output that AI throws at you, right? Uh, you just put in a lot of data into AI, it spits out new KPIs and you have to boost, look for correlations yeah. and make better decisions and understand all of that. If we use the same reports that we've been using you know, since forever, we will not be able to make sense of all the new, new data that we're thrown at. And so yeah. that's yeah, really I, important. I, I, I... The, the leadership skills, I mean, take, to take something I'm putting it in my own words or, or mindset is machine learning. I don't know what the, what the AI is even going to tell me. I have to exactly. be agile and, and, and to use sort of the principles of, of mindfulness. I have to have beginner's mind, right? And yes. Reperception is all about that. And I love this term. You said it perfectly. Beginner's mind. Yeah. Leaders too but, often have an expert's mindset, which is good at times, but in a word that's rapidly changing can also be harmful. Well, and it's an element of what I think people are understanding is the new, one of the new leadership skills is I, I noticed that, you know, part of how you do your, your stuff involves yeah. neuroscience. And I happen to be married to a, a, a psychotherapist. So I, I get my daily dose of, of, of neuroscience, whether I want it or not. But uh, how, how, you know, do we need to understand the science of leadership in, in a digital transformation age a bit better so that we can understand our own heuristics, our own biases in order to ask the best questions? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very important because uh, we have to be almost as kids. When, when we look at kids of like three, four years old, uh, they ask much more questions than adults, yep. right? And we lose that because our educational system is uh, designed and at least, you know, it rewards you uh, if you provide answers, not if you're good at asking questions, right? That's the way, you know, we got school and we're just, you know, tested based on the knowledge that we're able to retain, but we're not very tested for our critical thinking or for the quality of our 
questions. And that's a problem because in a world where AI is better at retaining information than us, then we have to understand what are we better at? And that's when adults also should learn to ask more questions than just to provide the answers. And Great. so that's that's uh, super important. So uh, we started this off uh, and I'm just sort of migrating. So I have a nice sort of symmetry to this. So you started off, you know, with with where you were and 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 the and your journey. Where's Andrea in five years? What do you what's your purpose? What do you hope to be doing? Uh, visualize. That's a great question, Brian. Um, I oftentimes, you know, try to predict what will happen over the next years. Uh, it's very hard, right? In such a uh, rapidly moving environment. But I've definitely chosen to focus most of my work uh, in keynote speaking uh, into international markets, doing that in English. Uh, I've been doing that for a number of years in Portuguese. And now, uh, thanks to that effort, I, I, I can say um, definitely things are doing very well in Brazil, where I'm uh, one of the top keynote speakers in 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 the field of digital transformation. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, we do around 150 events per year, but I'm focusing more and more into the U.S. because it gives this international perspective. I relocated to New York recently. Um, what I would say is that I will continue focusing on my keynote speaking, but I would also love to help others uh, undergo a career as a keynote speaker. I've learned many things along the way. And what I mean by helping others to do that is setting up a um, small boutique agency of people that are also knowledgeable about all of this and that I would be able to represent uh, in international markets uh, when it comes to events. Because again, the more you speak, the more you get in touch with uh, companies that hire for speakers and they have at times very distinct demands. And so I see myself as that. I see myself also and my business as relying heavily on AI, to be honest, and does not mean that I, I will be substituted by an AI on stage. But all that back office work that is related to any keynote speaker, which is researching content, writing content, posting on social media, taking care of uh, uh, you know proposals, I see that as being extremely automatized. Uh, it will make my, you know, me save a lot of time and better think critically about the topics which will make my content even more unique. Uh, that's, you know, something that uh, I think uh, technology comes uh, to help us. And so I, I see myself as to that. Let's see. I hope we'll talk again in five years, Brian, and see <laughs> that things were that way. But I doubt so. Uh, everything is so unpredictable and uh, <laughs> could be very different, could be uh, a pivot, could be anything. <laughs> yeah, well, we should we should put a mark in this schedule. I, I agree. I think, and, 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 and do a review, you know, post, <laughs> post mortem, whatever. But, you know, I, I mean, just to sort of close up, I mean, one of the, my takeaways is because, you know, what we're talking about is instead of learning how to do things is to learn how to ask good questions instead of having yeah. the answer we need to be better and and i think you know what the speaking thing what you're doing is actually is is a training program in effect to yeah. help people break out of their traditional processes that would be in place at l'oreal and yeah. and to think oh, i'm not going to give you the solutions to this let's talk about being customer centric to be open minded to dump a bunch of data into uh, a machine learning situation and, and then be ready 
or to be surprised even with what comes out of the box. So it's, uh, it's fascinating. Um, I wish I could say I really understand it. And I'm not sure that, that anybody really does. I'm, no, I don't think we do. And I think that's the, the beauty of it. I think uh, because of the fact that we don't fully understand it, that's why we continue to lean towards it and to think about that. Uh, if we just would fully believe we understand something, then we stop researching and thinking about it. So I think it's uh, the beauty of it. Yeah. Andrea Oriol, uh, wonderful. I appreciate your time and uh, very thought provoking. So thanks being my guest today. And uh, hopefully there's some folks that are listening to this that, I uh, will ask better questions in the future as opposed to <laughs> looking for the best solutions. So thanks a lot for people who's interested in more of my content. You just type into Google andreayaro.com. You'll find more of my content on my website. Thanks, Brian, so much for the so opportunity. And could you here. spell that so that yeah. you'll just do it? A double t- a- Let's do because it's a complex name. A-N-D-R-E-A-I-O-R-I-O.com. And people can find me there. And again, ask questions <laughs> through the box at the bottom of my website, through the form. But jokes aside, uh, it was such a pleasure, Brian, to be with you. Um, and it was a really, really thought-provoking conversation. And we'll meet again in five years. Unplugged, unscripted, board leadership. This is Unboard.